Jesus, I give you praise for the fact that we can gather together and look at your word and know that your Holy Spirit works, that you convict men and women of their sin, that you call us to holiness, that you give us a spirit that's a seal and a guarantee of our faith that drives us to obey you. Lord, I ask you with us today as we read your word, in your holy name, amen. <clears throat> so, uh, it's a pretty significant memory in my life. I, I can visualize it. As I walked off the field, I had, I had a noticeable limp. There was, my ankle hurt. I could feel my heartbeat in my lips. I could sense the taste of blood. Don't, don't worry, it was my blood. <laughs> I had a bloody nose. My head hurt. I pretty much hurt all over. You see, I, I was never great at sports. I, I couldn't quite find my place. But at the last practice of my seventh grade year, coach decided he was going to find a place for me and so he put me at quarterback he put me at linebacker he put me at defensive end he let me return kickoffs and return punts and I got destroyed I I got lit up over and over and over again but I kept getting up and, and as I walked off that field that day I had a smile on my face because I, I gave effort to something that I loved and I demonstrated that it was valuable. And even to a little boy, you understand that. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the effort that you put into something you love. Loving God with effort. The pastors and staff of the church have been calling us uh, to embrace the role of disciples who disciple being a disciple is like being an apprentice. You spend time with a master to understand the craft. Well, to be a disciple of Christ, you spend time with Christ. He's the master. And you spend time with him with disciplines. Reading the word, praying, worshiping, talking. The thing is, when we're weak in our disciplines... It usually reveals that we have a lack of love. Today I'm going to claim that we have a lack of love. You, you may not agree. You, I'm open to be corrected. But I'll tell you plainly, I have a lack of love. I don't love him enough. And I need to love him more. I've taken actions myself to correct that. And today is to encourage you to do the same thing. So we're going to spend time in two passages. The first is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38. The second is Luke 14, verses 26 through 33. They should be in your handout if you have it. So I want you to look at this passage and think about the command that God gives us for loving Him. I'll read it. 
And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. These are Jesus' words. He's speaking to a Pharisaical lawyer who asked, What's the greatest command? As we read the words in context, we look at it kind of like a play unfolding before our eyes. There's a corrupt lawyer who seeks to capture a sage prophet with his words. But unlike the lawyer, we know this isn't just any prophet. This is the Messiah. And so as we read these words in context of the story, we laugh, knowing that the lawyer's been trapped, not the Messiah. When applied to the lawyer, God's command of love is unattainable. We all know it. And that's why the lawyer disappears from the story. Those words, though, reference the law of Deuteronomy. Christ indicates it's a summary of the law, that all the law and the prophets hang on these. Christ is restating the law. To be clear, this is a long-standing universal requirement that applies to all mankind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Take the words off the page, then. Apply, apply them to us. How do we interpret the words? One response would be, it's unattainable. There's nothing I can do. I, I just don't measure up. And in all honesty, that is Christ's intention. We don't measure up. But there's, there's another response. It's a well-supported claim that we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. And so you might tend to do that here to judge the lawyer more harshly and judge yourself more leniently. So maybe we read this passage and we feel safe, like we've got this one covered. Maybe because we're so well-versed in salvation by faith and not by works, we don't let the words hold the power they're intended to hold. Now, I'm not trying to debunk faith, not works. I believe it completely. If you're saved, it's by the grace of God, as a gift of God, through faith that he will forgive you of sin. But if we take a plain reading of that text, that straight, matter-of-fact reading, it says we're commanded to love him, required to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. There's another verse I'll couple with this. It's John 14, 15. Jesus' words, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so if you couple the two together, Matthew 22, that you're required to love God with everything you've got, John 14, that to love God is to keep his commandments, you're left looking at this. With all your heart, is a desire to please him by keeping his commands. With all your soul is a disposition to serve him. And with all your mind is an appetite to know him and his commands. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So let's do a little exercise. How much do you love God? 
on a scale of 1 to 10. Might feel like a middle school exercise. <laughs> but be honest with yourself. 1, I don't love him at all. 10, I love him 100%, everything I've got. What number do you choose? Are you playing it safe? Let me ask a few questions to try to evaluate that. How many times do you need to pray to Jesus in a week in order to demonstrate that you love him? Now, that's not about salvation. Don't, don't get upset there. We know salvation doesn't have anything to do with that. But if you want to demonstrate love to Jesus, how many times should you pray to him on a weekly basis? Once? Three times, seven times, 21 times, 100 times? What's the number? How many times do you? If, if you love Jesus, how many times should you read Scripture on a weekly basis? Once? Once a day? Twice a day? 100% of the time? <laughs> what's, the, what's the number? How many times do you? If you love Jesus... How many times should you sacrifice something for him in order to demonstrate it? I mean, it, it could be anything, right? It, it could be, I'm going to go to bed a little bit later so that I can read. I'm going to get up a little bit earlier so that I can pray. I'm going to skip soccer because church is meeting. I'm going to skip out on me time so that I can go to a discipleship group. I mean, whatever you think it is to sacrifice something of yourself for Jesus, how many times do you need to do it on a monthly basis in order to show him that you love him? Once? A hundred? What's the number? How many times do you? I don't know about you guys, but I have to revise my number when I do that. That's... It's not comfortable. I don't like it. I'm a believer of 40 years. But I still have to evaluate that. And it's our responsibility to do the same. In the middle of it, something inside of me rises up. Hey, you're being too hard on yourself. Back off. You teach Sunday school, you pray, you read, you talk to your kids about it. But that's just pride. That's just pride welling up and trying to justify who I am. And I bet you do it too. Let me remind you what we believe. We believe that none of this physical world exists without the creative work of Christ. Therefore, we believe that there's a spiritual realm and a physical realm. We believe that Jesus wants everyone to be in heaven with him, but none of us are worthy. We believe that he came to earth God in the flesh. That's John chapter 1. Because he can't just overlook the fact that we don't fulfill his command to love him with everything we have. In fact, when he came, he pointed out that he wasn't coming to bring peace, but to cause division, to bring a sword. That's Luke 12. That one command, Matthew 22, a summary of the law, Christ reveals that every one of us are corrupt. Romans 3. That none of us seek God. Romans 3. And so Jesus draws a line in the sand 
You're a disciple of God if you love him with everything you have. And we all land on the wrong side. And as judge of the quick and the dead, Acts 5, he has the authority to pronounce judgment and issue a sentence. We are guilty and we all deserve damnation. His purpose was to reveal the righteousness of God, Romans 1, and to offer salvation to any that would accept it, John 3. We believe that while we were still sinning against him, he chose to sacrifice himself on the cross, Ephesians 2, so that we have the opportunity to plead peace with him and receive salvation and be saints, Ephesians 1. That's what we believe. That's the Jesus Christ we claim we serve and we struggle to love him. I just want to point out to you that I didn't tell you what number to use for how many times you pray, how many times you read, how many times you sacrifice. I didn't choose a number. Hopefully you did. And that's a good thing. That's scriptural because we're called to test ourselves to see if we're in faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in faith. And so, let's talk about what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a believer, because we say they're the same thing. Look at Luke 14. This passage, verses 26 through 33, is titled, The Cost of Discipleship. I'm going to read it. You guys... Follow along. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christ drives straight to the point of the matter. And in the process, he exposes every tendency of someone who declares him to be their Lord. Look at verse 26. We must set Christ above every relationship. That's my summary for you. <laughs> we must set Christ above every relationship. Those aren't soft words. Christ is saying that he has to be so far above every other relationship that there's never a question that he reigns supreme. If he doesn't have priority, then we're not following him. It seems straightforward, but we miss it. Because we think in other terms. We think we're choosing between Christ and, and Satan. Two extremes. Well, the choice there is obvious. You know exactly what to do. 
We're not choosing between extremes. We're choosing between loves. And the danger is you'll place Christ as the second love. If you want to be a disciple, you need to get this straight first. Name the thing you love. Is Christ above it? Verse 27. If we're unwilling to follow him to death, then we're not following him. Bear the cross, come after him. He's suggesting that we struggle right beside him. The cross is an element of death. Are you willing to pick it up? Will you walk with him to death? Listen, the fact of the matter is, living in America, you will probably never face the situation where you're asked, renounce Christ or die. And few will be called to go on mission somewhere where that happens also. But the fact of the matter is that we are all walking towards our death. Death may be the last opportunity you have to demonstrate faith in Christ. If it wasn't already heavy, it might be now. So you may not be asked to renounce Christ and die, but you are asked to renounce life and live. Verse 28 through 30. If we stop following after he lays the foundation, we make a mockery of him. Christ is talking about building a tower and the, the process begins with a foundation. But if you start building and realize you can't handle it, everybody wonders why. I, I live in Horton Bend. I drive down Horton Bend Road. There's a subdivision that's being placed in a cotton field. There's one road that's been built, one foundation laid, and one chimney that rises up. Every day when I pass that, I laugh. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> How long is it going to sit there before you start building the house? What, what's the problem? Somebody tell me what happened. It's just what goes through your mind as you're driving down the road because it's fairly obvious. It's not getting finished. Christ compares that to our relationship with him. If you declare Christ as your Savior, you call him Lord, he has laid the foundation Jesus Christ, the cornerstone on which we're built. And if you walk away from him at any point in your, in your life, you make him a mockery. You stop serving him, and you've just declared Christ is not enough. I thought he was, but he's not. You look at any pastor that's fallen, Carl Lentz, Ravi Zachariah, any artist who's denounced his faith or her faith, People don't really talk ill of them. They talk ill of Christ. That's what we do. So if you're a disciple of Christ and you're not acting like a disciple of Christ, you're laid the foundation and you walked away. I don't like this. Verse 31 through 33. We know he is victorious over our sin, either as conquering king or as savior. It's a figure of speech he offers two kings going to war. It compares Jesus Christ and his second coming, his judgment, to one king who sees another coming afar off and realizes, hey, I can't, I can't defeat that. Your only choice 
is to be defeated or to beg for peace. That's what Jesus compares discipleship to. You should beg for peace. I should beg for peace. Now, you may have come here looking for a place of peace and rest, but this sounds more like a place of war. And so I just want to take a moment and put things in perspective. There are lots of paradoxes in Scripture. A paradox is two statements that when read, they look like they contradict each other. But once you understand them, you realize they don't. They just reveal two truths. And this is what you find in Scripture, and it's one thing we're dealing with today. If you look at this two sets of Scripture, Matthew 10 and John 20. Do not think I come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace but a sword. If that's your only exposure to Jesus, you think he's a warrior. He's a fighter. He came to defy, to cause problems. Read John 20. Peace be unto you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. If that's your only exposure to Jesus Christ, do you think he's the peacemaker, the reconciler, the one who makes everybody happy? You put the two side by side, and you get the truth about Jesus Christ. He did come to defy. He did come to judge, and he did come to offer salvation. Christ is both the judge and savior. He's both the divider and the reconciler. It's both and, not either or. And so we've been talking through what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of, a God, a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a paradox also. Because you have two scriptures that sit side by side, multiple that sit side by side and make you think one thing or the other. Look at John 3, 16. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. He's the one that offers it as a gift. Salvation is a gift from God. Praise him. Luke 14, though, we've talked about the cost of discipleship. It's supposed to cost us everything. And so this paradox comes into reality because you realize that Christ is not telling us that he's just giving us a gift and he's not telling us that you have to work your way to salvation. He's telling us it's both. Saints are both saved by faith and called to work by faith. Saints are both saved by faith and called to work by faith. Does that make sense to you? Sometimes I don't like it, but he didn't ask me. So if you go back to Luke 14, where Christ is talking about the cost of discipleship, then what you come to understand is that Christ is, is not setting aside the gift of salvation and telling you that you have to work for, for his grace. He's telling you that salvation looks like this. It, to be saved looks like personal sacrifice, high cost, full allegiance over a lifelong duration. Do you see it? 
that sounds like war. That sounds like war. Are we in a war? I'm going to end up throwing this if I keep holding it. <laughs> Are we in a war? Nowadays, you hear the phrase culture war, right? I think it's an overused term. <laughs> but when you hear that phrase, you immediately start chasing thoughts. Thoughts about what's going on in the world, how morals are shifting, definitions of marriage and gender and sex and free speech and social justice, and that is not the war I'm talking about. We're talking about the church. And when I say that, your minds might start racing to the debates within the church, where women sit, how the church deals with the LGBTQ, what we do about social justice, whether all people are good, or the universal church that says there are multiple paths to heaven and Jesus is just one of them. Those are all issues to confront, and they're all places where we should be able to show respect to people and faithfully reveal to them the word of Jesus Christ and let Christ speak to it. But that's not the war I'm talking about either. The war I'm talking about happens in church every Sunday. It's the war between placing Christ supreme and making him second class. It's the war between setting Christ in his rightful place on the throne or treating him as an add-on to your life. Galatians 2.20, Paul declares, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who saved me and gave himself for me. We are called to discipleship. We are called to preach Christ and Christ crucified. But people tend to make him an add-on in their lives, a second love. They pray over dinner once in a while. They attend church when they feel like it, and they talk about conservative politics. By all means, don't be fanatical about Jesus Christ. Be fanatical about sports. Be fanatical about cars or fashion. Be fanatical about relationships, popularity, but do not be fanatical about Christ. That's not acceptable. And that temptation comes here. That temptation comes here every Sunday. There's a temptation to treat Sunday like an entertainment event. We're supposed to get goosebumps from the music, tears from the sermon. We're supposed to treat reading God's book like a book club, Bible studies, like a self-help program. We're tempted to treat prayer like an add-on we add to an event so that we can call it a fellowship. And if each of these temptations is, is an attempt to take Christ out of supreme position and place him second, we forget that we gather together for the purpose of knowing Christ and loving Him well. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works.
But the temptation to place other things on top of Christ remains. Sitting among us are people that make it more difficult. I'm included in this. In every church, there are both disciples and lost. Both people who claim Christ as Lord and people who don't. Don't forget that Christ said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the work of the Father. And among us are lost people. It may be you. As I say that, I want you to know you're welcome. If you're seeking to understand this gospel of Jesus Christ, you're welcome here. I pray you receive him. There are others who are just given to a pattern of sin and feel no conviction from the Holy Spirit. Both fuel the temptation to take Christ off the throne. Both fuel the temptation to take Christ off the throne because they say things like, I didn't like that song. Well, that message wasn't good today. What was he talking about? I don't, I don't understand that life group. That those guys are getting too spiritual. Scripture tells us the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Romans 8, 7. As soon as one man or woman is inspired to follow God more completely, they feel the peer pressure to conform to this world. People say things like, too heavenly-minded for earthly good. Always taking it back to Jesus. Wow, aren't you spiritual? Or maybe as soon as one person begins to ask questions, earnestly seeking to understand this faith, and the carnal mind shuts them down. How could you ask that? Aren't you saved? Haven't you been going to church for 10 years? Where does that come from? It happens in the world. It happens at work. It happens at school. And friends, I hate to say it, it happens here. I don't know if it's Satan or the carnal flesh or both. I don't know, but I know this. The battle has been brought home. You don't believe me? Today, you may want to praise Jesus, but you won't dare lift your hand. Somebody might see you. That's placing respect over Jesus. Today, you may want to pray to God on these steps, but you won't dare to go down. People will wonder about you. That's placing pride over Jesus. Today you may want to talk about Jesus, but you'll be quiet because people make it clear they're uncomfortable. That's placing relationship over Jesus. Are you guilty? I know I am. The battle's been brought home to the place you'd never expect it, to the church. No wonder we lose the culture war out there. We're losing the battle in here. We must place Christ as supreme. 
there's more evidence that this is true. Pastors learn it by experience. They learn that people have a set amount of time they're willing to give to the church on a weekly basis. Two hours. You add another event to the week and they'll just trade off. It's why the church has gradually changed from a place that has events throughout the week to one that has two. And they have very little expectation for the second. Let me be clear, you aren't supposed to be dedicated to a church. That is not what I'm telling you. You're supposed to be dedicated to Christ. But let's be honest with ourselves and stop judging by intentions. How often do you talk Christ, read Scripture, encourage other believers outside this building? I'm not just talking to you. Pastors also learn by experience that men don't respond. If you ask for prayer at a church, you'll find very few men that'll pray. I heard that once. I decided to pay attention and see if it was true. Watch any altar after an invitation. Who are the first people down front? More often than not, women. Who are the most down front? Women. Ladies, I mean nothing derogatory. Please hear me. You lead us. I love you for it. But... I'm left with only one of two conclusions because we know that the God the Father is always at work. Jesus' words, always at work. And if he's always at work, then why do we see more women responding than men? One option, God works on women more than he does men. Another option, Men quench the spirit more than women. I'm convinced it's the latter. Men quench the spirit of God. I know that's a gross generalization, but I believe it's true, and I'm willing to say it to you. Reading Scripture, praying to God, worshiping, have somehow been characterized as women's work. I know that there are men here that are greatly concerned about their faith. I know that. But I also know that there are men here that are not. They say things like, Yeah, I'm just not a reader. Oh, me and God, we get together when I go hunt. Nah, I, I, I'm not comfortable praying. They are largely unimpacted by His Word, uncompelled by His work, and dubious of His power. I read a quote by G.K. Chesterton. There are no uninteresting things. There's only uninterested people. For many, the fact of the matter is, 
you're uninterested. And once again, my little brain has to figure out, why would somebody be uninterested? Why would you not care? I come up with only three answers. Number one, you don't believe he's Savior. Number two, you said a prayer and you think you're good. Number three, you're doing good works and think that's going to get you there. If Christ is not raised, if Christ is not raised, we're all fools. We would be better served studying people and subscribing to life coach seminars. But if Christ is raised, then anything less than complete and total devotion to Jesus is asinine. Men, I want to point you back to Matthew 22 and Luke 14. Christ told us plainly that the work goes with the confession. Change your mind. Choose salvation and discipleship with Jesus Christ. You know it's true. You know that you are condemned to hell without it. You are condemned to hell in your works. You are not just. You are not righteous. You are not good. Jesus Christ has paid the price and offers you peace. You can choose him as your savior or you can choose him as your judge. To the men that are saved and see a need to love Jesus more, it's our job to lead. We must lead to establish the culture that should be in our church. We must not fall for the business culture of church where the pastors and staff are responsible to feed us and we're responsible to do one service project a year. This is our church. This is our community. This is our testimony to Jesus Christ. We must stand beside our pastors and do the work of loving Christ with effort. We need men to lead out in their gifting. If you're a man of service, lead with your service and disciple others. If you're a man of study, lead with your study and disciple others. If you're a man of music, Lead with your music and disciple others. We need men who are bold enough to say the words of Paul. Follow my example. We need men, modern day Peters, who've spent time with Jesus Christ and will preach the glory of God. We need prayer warriors like Nathaniel, who are found on their knees praying to a holy God and will teach other men how to do it. We need men like Stephen who are undaunted by the cause to silence their love for Jesus Christ even as the stones fly through the air. We need men who will lead. We are not... We are not called to be perfect. 
We're called to be blameless. We're called to be men who practice their faith. Reading, praying, worshiping, serving, just as a man would practice on a field. They have no expectation to be perfect, nor any expectation to become perfect. They just have the desire to pursue it. If there is a Lord and Savior, He is worthy of every effort, no matter the cost. I want to tell you something. I'm a, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. <laughs> it's just the way I think. And I started praying about the men of this church, believing that we are responsible to change our culture, that we must be fanatical about loving him. Then I started talking to men and asking questions. Hunter let me invade a life group teacher's meeting with a topic, and I asked men, hey, I want to start gathering men together that desire to love God more. Do you know what the response at that meeting was? I'm in. Tell me what we're doing. That encourages me. The glass isn't half empty. There are men that desire to love him more and to demonstrate it to others. That one request revealed that there are men of the same heart here If your heart is pricked, you're not alone. So then that group of men started meeting together to talk and figure out what does is, what is men's ministry look like? What are we supposed to do? Do you want to know what their answer was? It encourages me too. We need to meet together and pray and read God's Word and figure out what it's telling us. It's that simple. No program, no event, no book to walk through, nothing, unless it serves to point men into relationship where they'll be discipled in loving Jesus Christ. That's what we need. So those guys decided they were going to meet to pray. There's a group of men that meet on this back hall, 7.45, 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, and they pray. Do you know what they pray for? They pray for the movement of God in their own hearts and in this church. And then they decided that wasn't enough. We need to get together at 6 a.m. on Monday mornings, have a devotion, and pray again. And that's just men. I found out while I was doing it that there's already, imagine this, a group of women <laughs> who are meeting in the round room at 8 o'clock. You lead us. Do you hear what I'm telling you? There are men and women praying for the movement of God in Meadowbrook. If somehow prayer has a derogatory tone in your mind, 
I'm here to tell you that it's serious work for serious-minded people. A week ago, I sat behind a mother and father who buried their two-day-old baby. It's an excruciating experience. But through the life and death of a child, a father was forced to ask questions about eternity. And he confessed Jesus Christ. James 5, 16. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I know a man that was concerned about the salvation of his children. He committed to pray to God for assurance of their salvation until God answered. God did. God did. And now Jesus Christ receives glory because a father decided to go to war on his knees for his children. Do you hear me? I talked to another man. He told me he struggled with prayer. He decided to commit to a specific prayer. He committed to get up each morning and pray it, whether he felt it or not. Do you know what he discovered? It's really a, a simple truth. What begins is a commitment to a routine of practice because you know you should. Quickly transforms to a practice of love because he's worthy. I know there are others out there that have chosen to be discipled by God and to disciple others. We just haven't heard their stories. There's no exclusive club here. We're all part of the same church. We're just men looking to figure out what it means to be saved and how to exercise in it. I don't know what God has for us, but I know that he's working. Christ said in John 5, 17, My Father is always at work, and if he is working, then the adversary is at work also. Do not quench the Spirit. There is a war going on even here. Don't lay down. Don't give up. As Nehemiah encouraged his brethren, I use his words to encourage you. Do not fear them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible. Fight for your brethren. Fight for your sons and daughters and wives and homes. Listen to me. He's worthy. He's worthy of your effort. He's worthy of your practice. We need men and women who show love with effort by practicing our faith, read, pray, serve, fast, and discipling others to do the same. It's uncomfortable. There'll be times you think it's not worth it. You'll be tempted to place something else as primary. Remember, you're talking about the one that offers you salvation. You're talking about the one that created you. The one who sees you. The one who knows you're not worthy and still died on the cross to call you to salvation and peace and purpose.
Your effort will not be in vain. Your struggle will not be without purpose. You may never be called onto a mission field or asked to literally offer your life, but you are asked to give earnest, heartfelt effort to love him. Right after Christ declared those words in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he offered this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You do not walk this path alone. The Spirit of God rests on you should you call Him your Savior, and He empowers you to walk in effort towards Him, to work out your sanctification, to work out your salvation. And like that inept little boy walking off the field with a smile on his face and bruises and pain and blood, when the day comes that you walk off this field and you see Jesus face to face, you can tell him you gave it everything you had. Because he is worthy of every effort needed to show our love. We're going to have an invitation. I really want you to think about this. I'm coming at you as a brother. As someone that loves you and wants to see the movement of God among us. Ladies, please don't be offended. I'm going to ask you to stay where you are. And if your man or your son or your father needs to love Jesus more, pray for him. Don't berate him. Don't scold him. Don't mock him. Pray for him. Men, your pride is going to rise up because of that. You'll be tempted to have some anger because of it. Do not. She loves you. Men, some of you are lost. You do not know Jesus as your personal Savior. He will be your Savior or He will be your judge. He does not promise a safe path. But He does promise peace with Him. There will be men down front that can talk to you about it. Men, are you with me? I'm telling you. I've committed to pray until God moves and men relent. I've committed to stand and partner with our pastors and with other men to be a disciple and to disciple others. Will you join? It'll be messy. We'll mess it up. But He is worthy.